Mr. Chairman, hundreds of our countrymen have faced criminal charges. Many are serving criminal sentences because they believed what Donald Trump said about the election, and they acted on it. They came to Washington, D.C. at his request. They marched on the Capitol at his request. And hundreds of them besieged and invaded the building at the heart of our constitutional republic. That was Republican Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming speaking at the second day of testimony in the January 6th congressional hearings. We heard firsthand accounts from President Trump's former campaign manager and his personal attorney. They chronicled the former president's insistence that the 2020 election was stolen, even though his own advisors contradicted that claim. After the break, we'll start things off with our conversation with Democratic Representative Elaine Luria of Virginia. She's a member of the House Select Committee. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To share your thoughts or have your questions answered on future shows, tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. We're recapping the second day of testimony in the January 6th congressional hearings. Earlier, we spoke with Democratic Representative Elaine Luria of Virginia. Here's part of that conversation. Congresswoman Luria, the committee laid out for the American public the efforts by former President Trump and members of his administration to spread the big lie and challenge the legitimacy of the November election. In your investigation, what did you learn about the leaders of this disinformation campaign and the inspiration behind it? Well, in the the hearing that we had earlier this week, we laid out the fact that this was a deliberate plan. There were multiple steps, multiple phases to this. And essentially the idea was to, on November 4th, uh, when the election results were not even known, the votes were still being counted, to start saying, we won. Uh, Even though the former president was told by everyone around him, um, including his campaign manager, his uh, you know head experts in the, the homeland security arena, um, and you know the attorney general um, that he had lost, and so it was a deliberate effort to deceive the American public or some portion of the American public about the election results. Bill Stepien, Trump's final campaign manager, was scheduled to testify yesterday. He didn't appear because his wife went into labor. We did hear several recordings from his video depositions, and they illustrated his opposition to the former president's narrative about the election. I didn't mind being categorized. There were two groups of family. We called them kind of my team and Rudy's team. I, I didn't mind being characterized as being part of Team Normal, as, as reporters you know, kind of started to do around that point in time. I didn't think what was happening was necessarily honest or professional at that point in time. Why was it important to include this testimony in the hearings? Well, I think it was very important because this was the person who was advising the former president at the time. um, And, you know, he was reflecting his views of what he was seeing around him, what he was telling the former president. um, And, you know, nonetheless, um, the lie persisted. 
And so I think that perspective of those who were in the conversations about what steps do we take next, you know, I thought it was very, you know, informative that he said, you know, what we should have done as a statement, what I would have recommended, what I thought we should do, was essentially say the votes aren't all counted yet. And this is on November 4th, the night, uh, you know, after the election. Um, the votes aren't all counted yet. Let's stay hopeful. We're, you know, going to do everything we can and we're going to, you know, kind of keep up the fight until it's, until it's done and it's called. But rather than do what I think a normal campaign would do um, and, you know, carry on that hope for their supporters, they just lied and told them flat out, we've won. And in fact, uh, they hadn't. If there were these dissenting voices in the former president's camp, what have you come to understand about why the lie took root instead of the pushback that you hear from people like Stepien? Well, you know, that's something that does remain baffling to me because there's a lot of people today who've come to the committee and, you know, made statements publicly about how they disagreed what was happening at the time. Um, Things could have turned out very differently if some of those people had stood up and spoken a lot more publicly and vocally at the time. Uh, Because obviously if they were having those conversations behind closed doors in private with this group of advisors, for example, and it wasn't moving the needle... I feel like they needed to do more. Um, and so I think that's part of an unanswered question. Like why was you know his will to just keep perpetuating the lie um, stronger than the voices of everyone else around him? And, and what have you come to understand about how members of Trump's inner circle benefited from peddling lies about election fraud? Well, you know, part of what we laid out in the hearing was that, you know, it wasn't just a big lie. It was sort of the big steal um, after the election was lost. Uh, this argument of having won and it having been stolen was used to raise hundreds of millions of dollars um, from unwitting supporters who thought there was still a chance, that there was a possibility that the result could be changed. And so, you know, there were some examples given of where that money was spent. And, you know, we have much more in-depth, you know, detail of, of all of the places that that money went. And, you know, this is from people who maybe of modest means wanted to support the person who they believed in, yet their money was being taken and used for, you know, other purposes than they were being told. In the, during the hearings, uh, the number $250 million was mentioned around fundraising efforts, around this, this lie about election fraud. Can you give us an example of where the money actually went? There was a lot of it that went to, um, it kind of morphed into the Save America PAC. I mean, people were paid tens of thousands of dollars to stand up for two minutes and give a speech, for example, at the January 6th uh, ellipse um, rally. And, you know, these people, you know, in my mind, when I see someone standing up to support a candidate, I think they're doing it because of their conviction, not because they're being paid by the supporters of that candidate to be there for two minutes. And so, um, it was not going to this election defense fund, which if you see the emails, the graphics that were um, portraying a legal defense fund, you know, the money wasn't going uh, to the places that the, the hundreds of these emails were claiming that it was. We're talking to Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria. She represents Virginia's 2nd District, and she's a member of the January 6th House Select Committee, tasked with investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Congresswoman, the hearings also featured testimony from former U.S. Attorney for Northern Georgia, B.J. Pock, as well as former Philadelphia City Commissioner Al Schmidt. Both are Republicans. Why did the committee focus on the elections in Pennsylvania and Georgia specifically? Well, those are two of the examples of these swing states, the ones that were really being 
pressured in a variety of ways to potentially change the outcome of the election. And we're very familiar with what happened in, in Georgia, these calls to the um, Secretary of State, uh, Raffensperger, for example. And, you know, we really want to dig in, like, and this will be the subject of one of our future hearings, is, you know, what was the nature of this pressure? What types of things were being done in order to perpetuate this lie and to try to get people uh, to, to, to change the results of the election? And we're very fortunate that, you know, people in these positions of authority in these states, you know, many of them, uh, Republicans, the ones we heard from yesterday were, you know, they followed the law um, and they didn't succumb to this kind of pressure um, and they uphold the results of the election, the, the results of the voters in the election. Going through this investigation, how confident are you that the laws we currently have on the books to protect our elections are, are enough, or do you see places where those things need to be shored up? That's one of the main things that we're looking at. One of the main reasons for this committee is that, you know, we're a legislative committee. So our purpose is to provide oversight, to lay out the facts, and then provide recommendations for things that can be done in the future, essentially to prevent something like this from happening again. And so one of our main areas of focus, you know, in this aspect of the investigation is what are the vulnerabilities in our election laws um, that allowed something like this to almost succeed, and what needs to be done to make sure that it couldn't happen again in the future. And examples of things that we will be looking at and are considering throughout this are the Electoral Count Act, you know, some of these campaign finance um, things as well. You know, were there any laws actually broken by this, you know, grift that was raising $250 million from unwitting supporters? And, you know, what can we do to make sure that when people contribute to a political cause, they they actually know where their money's going and that it's being used appropriately. So those are just examples of the things that we'll look at. But again, that gets to the core of why we have this committee is to provide those kind of recommendations so that we can you know, make sure our legislation stands up to any potential future threats. Well, we hear a common theme from our listeners as they're watching or listening to these hearings. This is Eileen in San Diego. I hope the hearings on the January 6th riot do result in criminal convictions. What would come out of this hearing would be more evidence for prosecution. What I'm looking for is accountability, calling out the leaders from Trump on down, with the end point being calling for their indictments. Now, Chairman of the House Select Committee, Benny Thompson, told reporters last night he doesn't expect to make a criminal referral against Trump to the Justice Department. Meanwhile, your colleague, Republican Representative Liz Cheney, tweeted, quote, the January 6th Select Committee has not issued a conclusion regarding potential criminal referrals. We will announce a decision on that at an appropriate time. What can you tell our listeners about the evidence you're collecting and how that could be used for criminal referrals in the future? I'll reiterate that the purpose of our committee is not a criminal conviction. We are, you know, the Department of Justice will, you know, actually uh, handle those types of things. Um, but what I'll say, and I would agree with what Liz Cheney said, I also issued a statement uh, shortly thereafter that said, you know, we haven't made a decision on this yet. Um, a criminal referral would be uh, a referral from the committee in Congress to the Department of Justice saying, we think we have found the following fill-in-the-blank criminal actions. Um, and then the Department of Justice would actually have to take that, investigate, indict, and prosecute if necessary. There's clear evidence that um, you know one can, can see that criminal activity was in, involved in this. And so, 
you know, as we move forward, our committee will issue a report with all of the facts. Those facts will be, you know, viewed by the American people to make a judgment. Um, and also, as we've seen, the Department of Justice, uh, Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland says that, you know, he's watching closely, as are many in the Department of Justice. And so the information the committee has collected will be provided uh, to the Department of Justice as well in depth, all of the details. And, you know, we will hopefully, I will say, um, you know, be able to use this to get that accountability that your listeners are looking for. Congresswoman Luria, thank you for your time. Thank you. That was Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria. She represents Virginia's 2nd District. She's a member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Joining me now is Scott McFarland, CBS News congressional correspondent. Scott, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Philip Bump. He's a national correspondent for The Washington Post. Philip, we appreciate you being here. Of course. Thank you. And Allison Dagnus, a professor of political science at Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania. Allison, welcome back. We heard from Katie Allen, who tweeted, It's shocking to me that so many people just want to move on from this. People who claim that we're wasting time and resources. If January 6th was a minor event and not worth investigating. You can also send us an email at 1A at WAMU.org. And a quick programming note, the next set of hearings has been moved from tomorrow to Thursday. We'll continue to bring you live anchored coverage from NPR when they resume. I'd love to hear from each of you whose testimony yesterday revealed the most to you about former President Trump's efforts to subvert the results of the 2020 election. Philip, I'll come to you first. Uh, I'm going to have to say the former Attorney General, Bill Barr, made very specific claims about conversations he'd had with Trump, rebutting some of the allegations that Trump had made about fraud. Uh, you know, there's one example for uh, that, that was raised where Barr told him actually what happened in Michigan was not suspicious at all, which the committee then savvily paired with Trump the following day saying, oh, look what happened in Michigan, uh, as, though, as though this had not already been debunked. Uh, I think Barr's statement, I mean, everyone's focused on this, you know, Donald Trump was detached from reality uh, if he actually believed these things. But I also think it's important to note that the other thing Barr said, which is that no evidence could actually sway Trump, uh, that he tried. He had been a you know, stalwart ally of Trump's. He tried to convince him, hey, look, man, you're going down the wrong path with this stuff. And it just simply had no effect. Allison, what about for you? I, um, I agree with Philip. I also think that I've been just impressed with how circumspect and concise these hearings have been, um, that that every person has just been on point, um, and the way that they've used the testimony clips has been profoundly effective with very few words. You know, I don't think that the committee is trying to overwhelm uh, the viewers and the audience and the public with too much data, too much information. And so I thought that um, A.G. Barr was was very effective. I thought that Chris Steyerwald from Fox News was very effective and kind of peeling back the curtain a little bit. But I mean, I like media, so I thought that he was especially informative. Scott, any specific testimony really stand out for you? That it was all Republican voices. It wasn't a Democratic operative at the witness table or in depositions. It was all Republicans from the inner circle or from the states in question. In addition to what Philip mentioned, that detached from reality comment about the allegations from William Barr, the former attorney general also used the word silly and crazy to describe the allegations of voter fraud that President Trump was buying into or was perpetuating. But what's more, something else, a little footnote from the William Barr deposition. He said it was a wrestling match to get former President Trump to listen in the best of times and best of circumstances. I just, what I was left though with this, this nagging voice in my mind saying, where was this after election day? 
Where was this criticism from these Republicans during those fraught and tenuous weeks between November 3rd and January 6th? Well, you all have mentioned uh, former Attorney General William Barr. Here's a bit of his testimony. I told him that the stuff that his people were shoveling out to the public were bull. You know, he was indignant about that. I reiterated that they'd wasted a whole month on these claims on the Dominion voting machines, and they were idiotic claims. And uh, I specifically raised the Dominion voting machines, which I found to be among the most uh, disturbing allegations, disturbing in the sense that I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations. And that's from a taped deposition we heard from the former attorney general. Philip, how did the former president and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and and other members of that team spread false information about Dominion voting machines? It it was extensive. And people may remember in the weeks after the election in particular, there was this broad effort uh, that really started, I think, in full force in mid-November when there was that press conference held at the Republican National uh, uh, Committee headquarters in Washington. And Giuliani and Sidney Powell stood up and just outlined this really, really obviously bizarre allegation about how these machines have been, you know, somehow co-opted by the, the, the Venezuelan actors and all this nonsense, right? And, you know, in, in that hearing, there was even this conspiracy theory going around that somehow a server had been seized by the military in Germany and someone asked Powell about that. She's like, yeah, this is part of it too. And it's just like this bizarre nonsense, right? And very quickly, Dominion and Smartmatic, two of the companies that were the target, Targets here filed lawsuits, you know, defamation lawsuits against a lot of these actors, which very quickly led to a lot of the networks like Newsmax uh, that had covered some of this stuff, walking it back, issuing on-air retraction. So this was this was obviously nonsensical and fantastical from the get-go, uh, and you know, it's it's obvious then why Barr would say this thing in particular. If Trump is buying into that, then we're pretty far beyond the, the boundaries here. Now, Allison, Trump was laying the groundwork to perpetuate the lies about election fraud in the months leading up to the November election, including questioning the validity of mail-in ballots and and early voting numbers. Explain what the red mirage is and how the former president used that political phenomenon to spread disinformation. Sure. The red mirage is the idea that on election day, votes that are cast in person will be counted first, and votes that are either cast early or are mail-in ballots will be cast second. And will be counted second. I'm sorry? Will be counted second. Will be counted second, Mm -hmm. sorry. Um, And so on election day in the throes of a pandemic, when more Democratic, capital D Democratic voters were voting by mail, the idea was that there would be more Republicans who would be voting in person and therefore more Democrats who would be voting by mail, it would appear then that Trump was ahead in the vote count, and then after the mail-in ballots were counted, there would be um, a, a surge for Biden voters. Well, former Attorney General William Barr has been outspoken about the pressure Trump placed on the Justice Department to investigate claims of widespread voter fraud. The department doesn't take side in elections, and the department is not an extension of of, uh, your legal team. Uh, And our role is to investigate fraud, and and we'll look at something if it's it's specific, credible, and could have affected the outcome of the election. And, And we're doing that, and it's just not... They're not. They're just not meritorious. They're not pan, panning out. Scott, what do we learn about the measures former President Trump was willing to take to legitimize these false claims of voter fraud? Well, we were supposed to learn a lot more about those tomorrow at this third hearing about the Justice Department interference and the Justice Department's um, 
efforts to push back on that interference, but that hearing itself has been pushed back. Thing is, the committee drew this very direct line between the big lie of the voter fraud claims and big money, this big financial grift. What I found most striking yesterday wasn't what was said during the hearing. What the uh, committee member, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, said after in a media interview that the investigation by the committee found Kim Guilfoyle, this Trump world figure and former cable news figure, gave a speech at the White House Ellipse for a fee of $60,000 from money generated by the big lie. Her speech went two minutes and 30 seconds, which I equated to $400 per second for Ms. Guilfoyle's speech. The committee has a green team of investigators that's following money trails. They may show more of their cards about where some of this money went that was generated after November 3rd, if not in the hearings, likely in their written report, their summation, which we expect late this summer or early this fall. We're talking about yesterday's January 6th congressional hearings with Philip Bump. He's a national political correspondent for The Washington Post. Also with us, Allison Dagnus, a political science professor at Shippensburg University, and Scott McFarlane, a CBS News congressional correspondent. You can add your voice to the conversation. Email us at 1A at WAMU.org or tweet us at 1A. I'm Jen White. More from you and our guests in just a moment. Now let's get back to our conversation about the investigation into the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Yesterday was the second day of congressional hearings. Lawmakers examined the disinformation campaign led by President Trump and his closest allies that the 2020 presidential election was, quote, rigged. Earl Gray tweeted, I think the big ripoff is an interesting angle where there seems to be a whole new fraud that wasn't really being pursued. And Scott Earl Gray there referring to something Congresswoman Lofgren said yesterday that it wasn't just the big lie, it was the big ripoff. And as you mentioned, the committee found the Trump uh, campaign donors were asked to contribute to the official election defense fund. However, the $250 million raised went to a new political action committee, which in turn contributed millions to pro-Trump organizations. Explain a little bit more about how these findings could set the stage for a fraud investigation to the Trump campaign. In the best of times, campaign finance is a difficult beast to tame and it's difficult money to track. But let's just wrap our minds around the dollar amount you just mentioned that was mentioned by the committee. A quarter of a billion dollars raised not for the 2020 election, but for this voter fraud allegation set that came from the Trump team and the former president after the election. It's a lot of money. And campaign finance money is difficult to gather. It's difficult to do. You need a lot of donors throwing in a lot of money. So this big lie impacted, it swayed millions of people, according to the committee. Not just a few suckers, but millions of people. Where did the money go? It's a big question, an open-ended question the committee has left us with after this second hearing. They haven't really answered it for us. It's possible they don't know the answer, though they do have a team following the money trails. They don't know the full answer, or this could be part of the composition they're preparing for their final report and maybe for a referral to the U.S. Justice Department. Members have given us different stories over the last 24 hours about whether this all culminates with a recommendation the Justice Department to prosecute someone for something, be it fraud or otherwise. But that could be the coda to all this, 
a recommendation that the Justice Department either investigate or prosecute for, among other things, financial improprieties. New York Attorney General Letitia James tweeted this week, quote, The new details revealed tonight related to January 6th are disturbing. It's my duty to investigate allegations of fraud or potential misconduct in New York. This incident is no exception. Scott, there's been a lot of speculation about what actions Merrick Garland might take, but who else might pursue investigations? Yeah, when you talk about campaign finance issues, 51 attorneys general could be stood up to look into possible issues with campaign finance. We've seen that in the past. In fact, one of the most um, vigorous investigators of Donald Trump and all things Trump has been the attorney general for the District of Columbia, not the U.S. attorney general, but the one who protects and enforces the law in the nation's capital itself. Um, yeah, This could be decentralized. There could be local investigations, which is already being, you know, seen as part of you know, the, the, the reality of Donald Trump post-presidency. We see the investigation in Georgia about that call he had with the Secretary of State. We've seen any number of investigations in New York State and New York City. This could be a growing, spreading thing, more local investigations, civil or criminal, into the former president. Well, we heard testimony from individuals working in two key battleground states, Georgia and Pennsylvania. Former U.S. Attorney for Northern Georgia, B.J. Puck, and former Philadelphia City Commissioner Al Schmidt, both Republicans, testified. Schmidt said that they investigated every claim of voter fraud, including the claim by Trump's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, that 8,000 deceased people voted in Philadelphia. I guess the crooks in Philadelphia are disappointed in this. They only submitted 8,021 ballots from dead people, mail-in ballots for dead people. Probably easier for dead people to submit mail-in ballots than it is to vote in person. Not only was there not evidence of 8,000 dead voters voting in Pennsylvania, there wasn't evidence of eight. We took seriously every case that was referred to us, no matter how fantastical, no matter how absurd, and took every one of those seriously, including these Philip, what concerns did members of Trump's own legal team raise about Giuliani's mental well-being and and level of intoxication on election night? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this the, the level of intoxication in particular came up early in the hearing. Uh, there was uh, Jason Miller, who was an advisor to Trump's campaign, noted that that Giuliani seemed to be intoxicated that evening. Giuliani has since this morning sent out a tweet saying that he only drinks Diet Coke. Uh, one may do with that with, with uh, what they wish. Um, so that that aside, the, the legal team was putting pressure on Donald Trump and Donald Trump's allies to sort of scale back what was being said. There were these lawsuits early on in the process. Uh, that were all wrapped up by December 31st, which I think is important to note when we talk about all this money that was raised. The bulk of that money was raised last year, well after there was any actual legal effort to try and overturn the election. Uh, but the lawyers were, were hitting the brakes. So one, one described having spoken with John Eastman, the attorney who had been advising Trump to move forward with some of his schemes, and just telling him, you know, no, orderly transition of power from here on out. I believe that was after January 6th. So there were there were these voices within the White House that were urging caution, that were urging him to, to, to adhere more closely to reality. But then you had these Rudy Giuliani types, these John Eastman types, who understood that they could maintain access to the president of the United States, the most powerful figure in the Western world, by telling him what he wanted to hear. Giuliani had been doing it for years by that point. He, of course, was instrumental uh, in leading to Donald Trump's first impeachment. Uh, but there were others around as well. And so Donald Trump always had someone who was willing to tell him what he wanted to hear that he could then use to offset what his lawyers, who were looking out for the best interests of Trump, really, and looking out for the best interests of the White House, uh, were to saying on the other, on the other hand. Here's Nima 
email we got from Lori who says, did Republican operatives who did not buy into Trump's big lie support it because it gave momentum to Republican legislatures who wanted to tighten voting restrictions? This is a central priority for the Republican Party. Allison, the January 6th congressional hearings are happening while more 30 more states have upcoming midterm elections. Uh, Representative Liz Cheney, a Republican from Wyoming, is facing a primary challenger this August who's been endorsed by former President Trump. Uh, according to data from the politics website 538, more than half of the GOP winners in primary elections have also supported the big lie. So how is this narrative continuing to influence the approach some Republican candidates are taking in the midterms? Oh my gosh, it is um, it is front and center. And in fact, um, Mr. Bump's own Washington Post just had a, a story that just dropped in the last hour that there are 100, by their count, Republican primary winners who are backing the big lie, um, not the least of which is Rep- Representative Cheney's um, primary opponent. Um, this has become so fundamental to many Republicans' campaign that it has become really much of a litmus test. And that is deeply problematic because, you know, the insurrection, which is horrifying, happened because Donald Trump lied about his election loss, right? He lied um, and he led his supporters to believe these lies and right-wing media backed him up. Um, And so what we witnessed yesterday was that those around Trump knew it was a lie. Um, Likely, Trump himself knew it was a lie, and it led to violence. The Capitol on January 6th, uh, 100 Republican primary winners back this lie. And these hearings are vital to try and stop this lie as a first step to help maintain democracy. Because if you win an election based on these lies, that gives you the mandate to change laws that go against the fundamentals of American democracy. We got this email from Kathy who says, what amazes me and more importantly concerns me is the fact that so many Republican members of Congress and current politicians seeking office continue to seek and proudly claim a connection to the former president. I live in Alabama where we just had a primary in which every Republican candidate tried to out-Trump their opponent. And and Scott, I really want to focus in on the, the part of Kathy's email that talks about current members of Congress, Republican members of Congress. How are they responding to the hearing? And and do you expect that we'll hear any more about potential congressional involvement in, in the insurrection? House Republicans are overwhelmingly boycotting this committee and these hearings. They call the committee political and illegitimate because their choices for the committee aren't seated. It was Nancy Pelosi who picked all members after the Republicans blocked having an independent commission to investigate January 6th. Um, This committee has subpoenaed five House Republicans who they believe have information that is critical critical to their investigation about who was saying what to the Trump administration in the days before January 6th and on January 6th. Among the five Republican members they subpoenaed, the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, All five of those House Republicans have defied the committee. They have defied the subpoenas. There was some interest um, about tours of the Capitol on the day before January 6th. In fact, the committee named a name, Barry Loudermilk of Georgia, saying they wanted to know if he had a tour group in January 5th. 
According to the Capitol Police Chief, yes, Mr. Loudermilk had a tour of 12 that grew to 15, that it was mostly a staff-led tour, but that it didn't get to the tunnels or the underground area of the Capitol itself. So we're hearing lots of members of Congress's names come up in these investigations. But speaking to the email from Kathy, you know, it's not just that there are candidates who are aligning themselves with Donald Trump to make a better push in 2022. There are candidates who are aligning themselves with the Capitol riot to find political advantageous positions in 2022. In fact, you recall last week, the Justice Department charged a Michigan gubernatorial candidate with unlawfully being on the Capitol grounds January 6th. And that candidate thinks, or has said he thinks, that the indictment increases his odds of winning a primary. And there's a county commissioner in New Mexico who has already been convicted in a January 6th case who told me he's still running for re-election and he thinks his conviction will help his cause. Allison, what new details will you be watching or listening for from members of the former president's legal team? I'm going to be looking for how it is they make the case for former President Trump pressuring former Vice President Pence to refuse to count electoral votes and drawing a direct line between that and the violence on January 6th. And what about for you, Scott? What will you be listening for? I've been following this for a year and a half, and I have circled on my calendar in a big big black Sharpie next week's hearing on the far-right groups and the rioters at the Capitol. The committee said in its opening hearing the name Proud Boys six times. The Proud Boys are charged with seditious conspiracy of plotting and planning January 6th. The Justice Department is taking care of them. That the committee has them on their radar indicates to me they're going to draw a line between the Proud Boys and some part of the Trump inner circle. And we know from court filings, one member of another far-right group, the Oath Keepers, the founder of the Oath Keepers, is accused of trying to call Donald Trump during the riot January 6th. The connections between these far-right groups and the Trump inner circle to me are everything as we watch for a possible intersection between the criminal prosecutions and what the January 6th committee is investigating. And Philip, what about for you? What are you watching for? No, I think that's right. And, and uh, people should note that committee chair uh, Thompson suggested there had been conversations between the Proud Boys and the White House. That that definitely is the case. But I think the committee is, is trying to do something different than what people might expect. I, I don't think it is certainly trying to figure out what happened uh, on January 6th. But what it's really trying to do is make the case that the, this, this was a broad effort by Donald Trump to try and steal a second term in office that had many manifestations, among them the riot at the Capitol, that the riot at the Capitol was an offshoot of this bigger problem, this bigger effort by the president of the United States to try and seize power uh, despite having lost the election. And I think what they're trying to do, too, is make a case for how this can be stopped, how you can implement barricades to that happening in the future to prevent a future president from trying to steal a second term in office. And I think that case, that's the more important case. And I think that's what they're really going to be building toward. That's Philip Bump. He's a national correspondent for The Washington Post. Also with us today, Scott McFarlane, a CBS News congressional correspondent, and Allison Dagnus, a professor of political science at Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania. Allison, Philip, Scott, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.